Worship leaders, worship musicians, and those who love to worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Let's talk about it. Welcome to Blueprint Sounds. My name is Nathan Smith. Thanks for joining me. Today, we're in part one of a two-part series called Spirit and Truth. If you're like me, I've grown up in church, I've heard about worshiping in spirit and truth for a long time, and to be honest, I have never really been happy with the uh, explanations that I've heard. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper and find out what it means to worship in spirit and truth. But first, I want to give you something. If you go to my website, blueprintsounds.com, you can get access to my free PDF entitled 25 Chart-Topping Arrangement Tricks. If you have a song that you've been working on with your band that's good but could be better, download this PDF. It gives you 25 great ideas for ways to grab and keep people's attention throughout a song. It gives you a couple sentences about why that trick works, and then it gives you a song from the radio so that you can hear the trick in action. Again, go to my website or click on the link nearby, blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks. All right, with that said, let's get to spirit and truth. We're in John, and this is the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus and his disciples are going from the south up to Galilee, but to get to Galilee, they pass through Samaria. And while in Samaria, Jesus stops at a well and talks to a Samaritan woman there. And they strike up a conversation and he reads her mail. He knows that she's been with five uh, different husbands and the one that she has now is not her husband. Well, she has a question for him. And so let's read this passage and then let's talk about the ways in which sometimes this passage gets interpreted and what I believe is wrong with that interpretation. So here we are, John 4, and we're going to start in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So I went digging around online to find out what people often say spirit and truth refers to. And here's the one I get a lot, is that the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, and truth refers to the Bible. So, as Christians, we need to worship with the help of the Holy Spirit, but we also need to worship according to the Bible so that we're doing it correctly. Well, the problem with that is that it makes it seem like they're balancing weights that that counteract each other. We have the Holy Spirit, but to balance the Holy Spirit, we have the Bible. And people may not say that explicitly, but you'll often hear people say, well, we don't want to become too spiritual. But you never hear people do it the other way. You never hear people go on the other side and say, well, careful, we don't want to become too biblical. Well, that can't be right. If we're acting like they're balancing weights, and then we say, don't become too spiritual, but we never say, don't become too biblical, then there's a problem there. The second problem we have 
is later on when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John, he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. He says, I will send you a counselor, the Spirit of Truth, who will remind you of everything that I have said. So, the Spirit of Truth is the Holy Spirit. It's not the Spirit or the Truth. Jesus doesn't promise, oh, I'm going to send the Bible and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit along with it. So again, there's, there's this muddled problem in interpretation if we're saying that the Spirit and the truth are balancing each other out. I've also heard this explanation. Not the balancing act, but, okay, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The truth is the Bible. So we read the Bible, and then the Spirit helps to interpret, or the, the technical doctrinal word is, illuminates for us Scripture. So we'd be reading the Bible, and, you know, something jumps out at the page, or something something uh, comes up in our head. Oh, I wonder if Well, that's the Holy Spirit helping us to understand the words of the Bible. That certainly is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who has been a Christian for a while and has read the Bible has had that experience where the Holy Spirit sparks something and says, hey, pay attention to this passage. That's absolutely true. But I don't believe that's what the Spirit and Truth passage in John 4 is referring to. And here's why. We have the big, fat problem of context. So the Samaritan woman is asking Jesus a simple question, and it pertains to mountains and worship. She wants to know where is the proper place of worship, and we'll explain the history of that in a second. But for Jesus to then turn around and say, well, you need the Holy Spirit and you need the Bible, feels like, a, like it doesn't have anything to do with her question, like he's ignoring it or dodging it. And I don't believe that Jesus ignored the Samaritan woman. I think he answered her according to the topic of conversation, which is mountains and proper worship. So to better understand what the woman is talking about and what Jesus is talking about, let's cover some history. So let's go back to the reign of King Solomon. He's the guy who built the temple. So he has a son named Rehoboam who is going to inherit the whole kingdom. Well, the Lord speaks to Jeroboam, right? Jeroboam is the official. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. The Lord speaks to Jeroboam and tells him that because of the wickedness of the nation of Israel, he is going to take away 10 tribes away from the line of David. But God says that because of God's love for David, he will not take Judah and he will not take Jerusalem away from David's line. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, comes to power and he treats the nation more harshly than his father. He taxes them more harshly than Solomon did. Well, the 10 tribes revolt and they follow Jeroboam. So we have this split. The southern kingdom is Judah and Benjamin with the capital in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, of which the most important tribe is Ephraim, and all of those 10 tribes up north have their capital in Samaria. That northern kingdom is called Israel, or sometimes it's called Ephraim. So now we have two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Judah down south, and we have the kingdom of Israel up north. Well, Israel falls into idolatry very quickly, and God sends Assyria, the Assyrian army, and captures Israel and sends everyone into exile. But something really interesting happens as a result of that. So we pick it up in 2 Kings. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord, 
Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile into the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they killed them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. What a crazy story. So we have some Israelites who remained in Israel also marrying some of the people that were brought in from all of those regions in Assyria, and they're intermingling, and that is who we call the Samaritans. They were half Israelite, half Gentile. So that's the beginning of the Samaritans. Also, you notice that they did not know how to worship Jehovah, to the point that the land is trying to expel them and lions are attacking some of the people. It's so bad that a priest has to get taken out of exile and brought back into Israel so that he can teach them how to worship God properly. It says later in that passage, even though that happened, even though the priest was sent back, the Samaritans continued to worship their own gods, and so you had this weird blend of syncretism, and you also had this revisionist history that happened. So, people started saying, okay, well, Mount Gerizim, and that's the mountain mentioned in John 4, must be the mountain, the holy mountain where we'll worship. And so, they said, okay, Mount Gerizim, that's where uh, Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. Well, we know from Scripture that it was actually Mount Moriah. So, that's the beginning of this whole mountain debate is the Samaritans have to worship somewhere. They choose Mount Gerizim because it's in Samaria. And so throughout the generations, they believe Mount Gerizim is the holy mountain where they're supposed to worship. But it's not exactly, it's not really Judaism as it was back in the day. So when the Samaritan woman asks Jesus, where should we worship? That's the history behind it. The Samaritans, half Israelites, half Assyrians, are worshiping at Mount Gerizim, which they have claimed as their holy mountain, and yet the capital, Jerusalem, is where Jews have always worshipped previously. So you can understand why the Jews and the Samaritans don't really like each other, because for the Jews, the Samaritans were outside of the covenant, not only genetically, but they had this weird blend of syncretism, which wasn't the law that God gave the Jews when they were in Mount Sinai. So there's a lot of acrimony between the Samaritans and the Jews. Jesus answers by saying, it's not Mount Gerizim, and guess what? It's not even Jerusalem. But he is referring to another mountain. So let's find out where that is. So here we are in Hebrews. And Hebrews is very much a legal document, but it's explaining the legalities of the Spirit. It's explaining that Jesus is the high priest, that he tore the veil and ascended into heaven, right? There's a lot of explaining to be done to the Jews that everything that Jesus did was according to the law and fulfills the law, but everything that you guys were doing, you know, on the physical earth with the the tabernacle and all that, those were just copies of what really happened in heaven. So then we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. 
And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is the mountain that Jesus was referring to. It's a mountain in heaven. It's called Mount Zion, which Mount Zion in Hebrew means the highest point. But just like Mount Zion in the physical is a copy of the real Mount Zion, which is in heaven, so the tabernacle was a copy of the real tabernacle, which is in heaven. And so the author of Hebrews explains, you've come to the heavenly Mount Zion. When you worship, that's actually where you're going. So when Jesus says that true worshipers will worship in spirit, He's talking about the mountain in heaven, Mount Zion, that true worshipers ascend in the Spirit when they worship the Lord. And we can also see this in Isaiah. John says that Isaiah saw Jesus and prophesied concerning him. Well, let's go to Isaiah and look at what Isaiah says about the mountain of the Lord. All right, we're in Isaiah 11. I'm going to skip around passages a little bit, but it's all from the same chapter. We start with verse 1. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So that's a prophecy about how Jesus comes from the line of David, which he does. We'll move on to verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Here we go. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So Isaiah is seeing the mountain of the Lord in a vision, in the spirit, and he talks about that. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the mountain of the Lord. Let's go down a little bit further. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. We'll skip a little bit. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. Remember that Ephraim, the most important of the tribes in the northern kingdom is often used in place of the word Israel. So sometimes they'll refer to it as Israel, the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, because that was the important tribe. So here we see Isaiah prophesying about Ephraim and Judah and how their animosity towards each other will dissipate. Well, Samaria is in Ephraim. So when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and she's asking the question about the mountains and, you know, this whole problem that the Jews and the Samaritans have about which mountain should we worship on, Jesus is actually fulfilling that prophecy in Isaiah in front of her. He's saying, it's not about the mountains. You are about to be reconciled with the Jews because everyone will be invited to my holy mountain, and that is the mountain in heaven, the heavenly Mount Zion. I want to explain one thing about the heavenly Mount Zion before I wrap up. And that is, we have to be careful as Westerners not to conceptualize this idea. And here's what I mean by that. 
our Greek influence has a nasty habit of making everything that the Bible says is spiritual into something that is conceptual. Here's what I mean. Greeks loved ideals and concepts and pondering, and so they always thought of ideals as the truest and the best things. And we get a lot of our philosophy and even a lot of our theology mixed in with Greek philosophy. So when we read that something is spiritual, we often tend to think that it is in the mind. Well, it's not. If you read Hebrews, and if you read Revelation, which we'll talk about in the next episode, Mount Zion is a place. It is in heaven, but it is a real place, even though it is not a physical place. And so, the big takeaway is that all of us, Jew, Gentile, Sumerian, doesn't matter, when we worship the Lord in spirit, we actually go to Mount Zion in our spirits. That's what the Bible says. Unfortunately, we, with our Greek influence, believe that we go there in our minds. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you have come to a heavenly Mount Zion. It did not say you have come to a conceptual Mount Zion. It did not say that you have come to a Mount Zion in your mind. In fact, Corinthians tells us that these things are spiritually understood, not through the mind. So, it's very important that we realize that when we worship in spirit, we are not worshiping with our minds, we are worshiping with our spirits, just like the Bible says. But we tend to change the address because there's been so many layers of interpretation on the scripture, we don't actually read what's there, we read what we think is there. So, in answer to the question, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? In spirit means that we ascend the mountain of the Lord in the spirit to worship him there. What about the truth part? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Hey, I hope that video helps you. And again, if you need help with your arrangements, go to blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks. All right, until next week, God bless and goodbye.